Well, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about confusion. In one sense, it's been a year of confusion, a couple months of confusion, a week of confusion. And as I've thought about times in my life that have been particularly confusing, there's been more of them than I wish that there were. Take a moment just right now and think about one of the recent times you were particularly confused. I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to call anyone, but just take a second and honestly consider a time where you were confused. What causes us to be confused? As I thought about some different instances where I have been particularly confused, one of the first ones I thought of was when my wife and I were in Brazil as missionaries and we were trying to learn Portuguese. And there was a number of social situations in which I was greatly confused. And I think one of the reasons, one of the trends that we see with confusion is a gap. There's this gap between what we expect to happen and what we actually experience. And I think in the middle, there's this ripe ground, fertile ground for frustration, confusion, and it's this gap that we see that so clearly at place. We see a discrepancy between what we thought was going to happen and what actually happened. And for me, one or two words in Portuguese was all it would take, and I would completely miss the point of what someone was trying to communicate to me. It was especially difficult when someone was trying to make a joke or a play on words, because I might not know that word, or I might not know the word that that rhymes with. And so this morning, we're going to con consider together what's kind of a confusing passage. And it's not confusing because of what it says. It's confusing because of the question of why. So I'm going to call this a little smorgasbord of confusion. We're going to consider together a prophet of confusion, a confusing circumstance, a confusing occurrence, and a confusing affirmation. All of this from Matthew chapter 3. So I'd like to invite you to please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be continuing through verses 13 to 17. So please join me in Matthew chapter 3 and stand as you find it for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this passage starts out easy enough. Really, it's, it's not so bad. 
we see in, in verse 13, Matthew basically lays out for us the setting and the purpose of what's going to happen in this little narrative section. Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, unfortunately for us, this is where clarity goes off the rails and confusion will ensue. If you're anything like me, you have terrible geography of Israel. And so I've included a map here, and you can see at the north, at the top of that map, is the region of Galilee from where Jesus came. He comes to the Jordan River, which is the connection between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, that dark green area. There's a thin little river connecting that, which is the Jordan River. And Jesus' goal is to be baptized by John. So that's, that's easy enough. But here in verse 14, we encounter this prophet of confusion, John the Baptist. So Jesus shows up to John, and John desires to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And he tells Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So the question here is, why does Jesus want to be baptized by John? We have to turn back to where we were last week to get our answer for this. Look back at verse 11 in chapter 3. John was in the wilderness. He was preaching and he was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And John said in verse 11 that he baptizes with water for repentance. But one is coming who's mightier than I, said John, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we have two contrasted baptisms. We have John's baptism by water for repentance and Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. And John has been preaching and preparing people for Jesus to come. And so when Jesus comes, John's natural reaction would have been, I can't wait to be baptized by Jesus. But Jesus shows up and says, no, I want to be baptized by you. We have here the greater one coming to the lesser and in humility submitting himself to John's baptism. This is certainly not how John would have thought this was going to play out. I think John is very rightly confused, and his initial reaction to try to prevent Jesus makes perfect sense. John can't wait to be, experience Jesus' baptism. But here's why I think this is happening. Jesus is humbly submitting himself to John. Jesus could show up on the scene and say, thanks, John, that was a good try. I, I'll take it from here. But instead, Jesus comes in humility and puts himself under John's baptism. And I think that this demonstrates a certain sense of continuity between what John has been preaching and preparing and this transition now to Jesus. John preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus is coming in humility to transition. You could almost think of it as a play. If you've ever been to a play, the lights are darkened, maybe the music begins, and you start to hear musical themes that are going to be revisited throughout the play. And then, all of a sudden, the curtains are parted, and you see the key actor in the role that's going to take place. John is not the key actor, but he's been preparing the way for the key person who's going to come and accomplish redemption. 
So, now let's look at further at this confusing circumstance. The way that Jesus persuades John to baptize him, in verse 15, he says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I think there's two confusing questions here. The first one is, why now? Why is now important? Why is that persuasive by Jesus? And the answer to that is because this is the first moment that we see Jesus as an adult, and this is the moment that begins Jesus' public ministry. And throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is now on center stage. So far in the first couple chapters, we heard about the birth of Jesus, we heard about Mary, we heard about Joseph, we heard about John the Baptist preparing the way for him, but now Jesus is ready to do something incredibly important. And the way that he kicks off his public ministry is submitting himself to John's baptism. And he tells John that he needs to be baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. Well, isn't Jesus already righteous? Isn't he already perfect in God's sight? Why does Jesus want to receive John's baptism to fulfill all righteousness? And I think the answer to this, yes, Jesus was already perfectly righteous. But if you imagine Jesus showing up on the banks of the Jordan River, and we read in, earlier in chapter 3 last week that there are crowds of people coming out to repent of their sins and to receive John's baptism, Jesus is coming and he sees these people who are there to repent of their sins, and Jesus is uniting himself with their circumstance, with the fallen plight of sinners and transgressors like you and I and those people on the banks of the Jordan River. And Jesus is uniting himself with their current sinful problem. And it's necessary that he does this to show that he is going to live and conduct himself in such a way that he is perfectly living up to the expectations God had for his people. That he's going to perfectly obey the law of God. He's not just undoing what the Old Testament described for how someone should live, but he is par excellence going to live up to that standard and fulfill all righteousness, not for his own sake, but for ours. Then we see a confusing occurrence in this next verse, and 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Now the question here, and the reason I'm calling this a confusing, confusing occurrence, is why is the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus now? We already know from earlier in Matthew that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And aren't Jesus and the Holy Spirit like on the same team? So why is the Holy Spirit coming upon him now? Well, to answer this question, we need to go back to Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah 42, verse 1. And I have it here on the screen for you as well. And we know Matthew knows this passage of Isaiah because in chapter 12, Matthew's going to quote this passage at length. Listen to what Isaiah speaking the words of the Lord, prophesies hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 41, 42, sorry, verse 1. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now here Isaiah is introducing this concept of this servant of the Lord who's being especially empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the task that God has set out for him to do. And this was a very common occurrence in the Old Testament as well. We would see kings of Israel or leaders of God's people be anointed with oil and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God had entrusted them to do. And so, yes, Jesus has always been a member of the Trinity with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus has, his life was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But here, in a special and public way, Jesus is being anointed by the Holy Spirit and empowered to carry out to completion the task of redemption, the will of the Father that he has given him. So that's why the Holy Spirit is coming upon him. Or some translations say even, coming to rest on him or coming to alight on him. Our final confusing situation is a confusing affirmation. Verse 17, we read, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So why is the Father affirming Jesus in this way? Hasn't Jesus always been the Son of the Father? Yes, he has. But let's go to the Old Testament again to get a little bit more context. This time to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2 is a, we might call it a royal psalm. It's about this Davidic king and this anointed one of the Lord. Listen to these verses, this verse, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now Jesus has always been the son of the father. But here in Psalm 2, we see a situation in which the king of God's people is declared in this additional special way to be the son of God, ruling in the way in which God would have them rule. And Jesus comes as this son of David, the great king of Israel. And here, what happens is Matthew is parting the curtains for us to see very clearly who Jesus is, and he's showing us exactly what the Father thinks of his Son. His Son is beloved, and the Father is well pleased with his Son. Jesus is coming to fulfill this role as the King, and the Father's pleased with him. And actually, within the book of Matthew, we're going to see, it's going to take us some time to get there, but in chapter 17, we're going to read these exact words that we're reading in Matthew chapter 3. On the trans, at the time of Jesus' transfiguration. The Father is going to declare, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then in chapter 17, he says, listen to him. And you could almost view affirmations from the Father as two bookends to the beginning and the near end of Jesus' public ministry. And we know at the beginning the Father is pleased, and near the end the Father is still going to be pleased with his Son and what his Son is seeking to do in this plan of redemption. It also would have been an incredible realization to the people on the Jordan River who heard this voice speak from heaven. So there should not be any doubt for them who Jesus is. 
And so here we're going to return briefly to this idea of confusion because throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, there's going to be a discrepancy between what is expected and what is experienced. So to highlight this, let's first consider what Matthew is telling us here. The first thing he's making very clear, there's three parts to this. The first one is that Jesus is the Messiah King. He's the one who has been promised, the one who they have been looking forward to. And quite honestly, this was the easy part, okay? This is what everyone expected, and they couldn't wait for it to happen. Prophets were told of this. But the problem is the second one. This is where the discrepancy or the gap of experience comes into place. Not only is Jesus the Messiah King, but he's also the suffering servant. And in case you don't remember who the suffering servant was, we're going to take our last trip back to the Old Testament, again to the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Listen to the way that Isaiah describes this suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah writes, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now there's much more in this excellent chapter in Isaiah that describes the suffering servant. But this was the point of discrepancy. Because people expected Jesus to come and to be the king, but the king wasn't supposed to suffer at the hands of the Romans. The king was supposed to have this glorious kingdom, and yet their king came in humility and in meekness, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. This was the hard part. This resulted in incredible confusion. But the reason that both of these roles, Jesus as the Messiah King and Jesus as the suffering servant, are so important, and what Matthew is getting at here in chapter 3, is this third one. Jesus is the Messiah King and the suffering servant who unites himself with us. This is absolutely essential for us, for the gospel to be good news. Jesus has to unite himself with our fallen condition, with our sinful problem. If you looked at Isaiah 53, I tried to bold all of the different pronouns, our transgressions, our sins, by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, on the banks of the Jordan River, sees fallen sinners, and he unites himself with their problem. And through the coming chapters of Matthew, we are going to see how over and over again, Jesus proves himself to be the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, the righteous one. And so this morning, as we wrap up our time together, I want you to consider, what about you? Are you united with the king? Because if you are not united with the king by faith, you are utterly alone. You have no one who is going to be able to stand in your place. John mentioned in the earlier verses of chapter 3, he warned the people, the axe is at the root of the trees. Judgment is coming. The chaff and the wheat are being separated. And the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. 
If you are not united with Christ by faith, you have no one to stand in the place of judgment for you. You are alone. You are not at peace with God. You are at enmity with God. And you should be deeply concerned about that. And I do not want you to leave here this morning remotely confused about this question. If, however, you are united with Christ by faith, then there's amazing good news for you. And it is that you are not alone, but you are in fellowship with the Son. And this righteousness that we're going to see over and over again that Jesus perfectly upholds, his perfect obedience to the laws of God and the things that were proclaimed in times past, Jesus is going to live up to those par excellence without fail and prove himself over and over again to be the perfect Lamb of God. The same Spirit that anointed Jesus and empowered him to do what the Father had for him to do if you are united in faith with Christ, you've received his baptism by the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit indwells each of us and empowers us to live in a way that is pleasing to the Father. So as we wrap up our time this morning, my prayer for you is that you would please the Father as you follow the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit.